Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We actually have a good martini today. Good, bad, and crazy. Our good one deals with a Democrat who's leaving Washington. So let's start there. Uh, We'll take any help we can get, especially on the House side with the very narrow majorities. (laughs) I'm sure you remember the... Uh, Many, many ballots it took just to elect a speaker back in January, but uh, a lot of different places reporting today. This particular report from Axios. Congressman David Cicilline, Democrat Rhode Island, is leaving Congress on June 1st to lead the Rhode Island Foundation, his office announced Tuesday. His forthcoming departure sets up a competitive special election to replace him in the uh, Democratic stronghold. I think we'll see about that. But Cicilline's departure, more importantly, will provide some breathing room for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy while the seat is vacant. McCarthy at present can only lose a handful of votes on any given party line floor vote. And so it's still going to be a handful of votes, Jim. But, uh, you know, any departure is uh, a little bit of breathing room, like the article said. And as you have discovered, the fact that he's leaving in June means that there's not going to be a special election until November, which is a nice five month gap. Uh, to not have that vote there, since David Cicilline has a uh, six-plus term record of being wrong on just about every issue from our perspective. Yeah, this is a little bit odd. Um, I, I suppose it's you know it's not unheard of for a member of Congress to resign in the middle, or I guess really this would be considered in the the first part of a two-year term, fairly early in a two-year term, to head up a state-level think tank. I suspect, though, that Hakeem Jeffries is, if not necessarily throwing something against the wall, probably, you know, grinding his teeth a bit today, thinking, you know, David, why couldn't you just decide you wanted to do this before the election, before the election? Now, obviously, this uh, Rhode Island uh, Foundation did not necessarily, you know, have the opening back then, but the timing is pretty lousy. Clearly, they feel like they can't hire a CEO and hold off until after the next election. And so Cicilline is just going to be like, OK, I'm going to leave and... Could Rhode Island, you know, schedule a special election before November? I've looked at the law. It sounds like the governor has some discretion, but, you know, between June and November, um, you know, it may not make a lot of sense for that district in Rhode Island to have two elections if they're going to have local elections this coming November. So my suspicion is that, you know, Rhode Island will decide, okay, we'll just resolve this in November. The new congressman will be sworn in uh, sometime shortly thereafter, which means there's one less member of the Democratic delegation for a couple of months later in the year. Will this be decisive in any votes? We don't know. It's a, lot, a lot of things could happen between now and then. But that's one of the consequences of having such a tight, uh, you know, uh, split in the House. That We saw this uh, last year with uh, uh, members of Congress. Unfortunately, they, they some, a whole bunch of them are older. Some of them pass away. It can always happen a car accident. Uh, some of them do take job offers or find some sort of offer that they want to take. And for one reason or another, they're not there anymore. And all of a sudden that, you know, five seat majority can turn into a six seat majority or a four seat majority or something like that. Um, and then you know, the other common, you know, observation is that, you know, usually uh, the House will have like very non-controversial votes on like a Monday afternoon or evening. Uh, at least that's what it was back when I was covering the House for Congressional Quarterly. The renaming post offices, the usually non-controversial bills that are going to pass you know, something akin to 435 to zero or something like that. Maybe Ron Paul would object back then. 
Um, it's a non-controversial. And Tuesday morning is when it was considered, you know, real work was done. So if you were a member coming in from Hawaii or, you know, Alaska or California, the West Coast, it was a little bit easier. And you really only had to be there starting on Tuesday morning. Well, now, with the, with the division being as much as it is, one flight delay from L.A. and all of a sudden a chunk of the House delegation for the Democrats can't get there. So all of a sudden, you know, this is just one more factor to this very tight house, slight advantage for Republicans. It's not the biggest or most consequential uh, news, but I think uh, at minimum, Kevin McCarthy should be sending uh, David Cicilline some sort of fruit basket or something like that and say bon voyage. Yeah, I don't know why Axios calls that a competitive race. Just looking at Cicilline's congressional history, uh, when he first got elected, uh, back in like 2010 and in 2012, uh, he had some closer races then. But uh, since then, he hasn't even been anywhere close to under 60 percent. So uh, don't, yeah, don't, don't no, expect I, I wonder if you think of the other House district where it looked like Alan Fung was going to be competitive last year. I, I was kind of disappointed with how Fung did. But that's the one that Republicans at least have a theoretical chance of winning someday. This one looks two to one Democratic. And, you know, if listeners, if Greg and I thought Republicans had a chance of winning this, we'd, you know, we'll see. I mean, obviously it depends on the candidates and all that kind of stuff, but uh, not a particularly low hanging fruit for Republicans. No, no, not at all. But, uh, you know, I, I think the reason they're going to hold it in November is because you do need a, a, a set amount of time to let the primary and then the general election for this special election play out. Uh, and then, of course, it saves you money to have it on Election Day in November because you're going to have that election anyway. It's just one yeah. more thing on the ballot. It, it reminds remember that time that Chris Christie, I think, was running for reelection, but they were also having the special election to replace Frank Lautenberg, who had died. And Cory Booker was going to win that special election by a lot. So Chris Christie ordered elections about two weeks apart. So the, yes. the swath of Booker voters wouldn't affect his race. Yeah, that didn't save any money. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And if folks have already been listening to the news this morning, here's the premise for today's bad martini. CNN uh, version here. Russian President Vladimir Putin said he is suspending his country's participation in the new START nuclear arms reduction treaty with the United States, imperiling the last remaining pact that regulates the world's two largest nuclear arsenals. Putin made the declaration in his much-delayed annual State of the Nation address to Russia's National Assembly today. The treaty puts limits on the number of deployed intercontinental-range nuclear weapons that both the U.S. and Russia can have. It was last extended in early 2021 for five years, meaning the two sides would soon need to begin negotiating on another arms control agreement. So, Jim, I remember when uh, this was a, a huge fight as a treaty that was actually requiring a Senate vote back in the early days of the Obama administration. My guess is here, since we didn't hear much about it, that Biden just did it unilaterally here. But uh, your point, your larger point today, is that Biden, thinking he's the tough guy who can uh, get Putin to do what he wants, uh, got him to sign a piece of paper. But we see what that's worth now. Yeah, look, you know, entirely separate from what you think of the START treaty as a whole, Biden came into office after, you know, pledging to be the guy who was going to be really tough on Putin, right? Remember, he pledged that, you know, when I'm in office, Putin knows his days of bullying Eastern Europe are over. Um, Biden got into office and suddenly there was this sharp pivot and Biden emphasized how much he wanted a stable and predictable relationship with Russia. And, you know, very quickly, I think within the first month or so of the administration, you know, Biden and his diplomats and the uh, the Russian foreign ministry agreed to an extension of the START Treaty. 
fairly low-hanging fruit. This is not a huge you know, deal, but okay, fine. But almost immediately after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it became clear Russia was not going to cooperate with the U.S. on much of anything. And in fact, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, they did not allow inspectors as they are required to do so by this treaty. Now, I wrote about this a bit in the Jolt a little while ago. That, like, this is you know, the Russian foreign policy philosophy as well. Let's see what we can get away with. Russia is fine with inspections of their nuclear sites as long as they get to do the same and that they uh, don't see any strategic disadvantage to it. But when we are in a, let's face it, de facto state of war with Russia uh, or a de facto proxy war with Russia, if not an open shooting war, you know, Russia sees no particular reason to cooperate with the treaty with the U.S. That is one of the reasons treaties don't really mean very much unless they have enforcement mechanisms. And the START Treaty, for all extents and purposes, really doesn't have that. It's really tough for the, you know, well, well, Russia, now we're going to get even more mad at you. Um, you know, right now, the U.S. is hitting Russia with every sanction possible. We've cut effectively almost all trade ties. We're trying to fight them on energy. We're arming the Ukrainian. Like, we're, we're now doing, there, there aren't any other buttons to push to say, how dare you? You are not beating this. So... Again, I think this kind of reflects the uh, philosophy of the Biden administration. That every time anything goes right, they run around and they want to spike the football. They want to act like it's the, the biggest, best deal anybody could possibly imagine. They're far too trusting. I think they're kind of naive. I think they're kind of um, in denial about the relentless hostility of both not only the regime in Moscow, but also the regime in Beijing. That, you know, it, was, it, should, it shouldn't have surprised anybody that a stable and predictable relationship with Vladimir Putin... Uh, was not all that likely. And then in the end, getting Vladimir Putin's signature on a treaty doesn't really mean that much because Putin will just break it the moment he does. I wrote a bit about this in the Jolt a little while ago, reading the, the Paul Johnson book about uh, modern times. Really, in the end, the only thing that makes a treaty worthwhile is what the consequence is for breaking it. And that breaking, that those consequences almost certainly have to involve military force. You know, because as I said, with Russia, we've done all the trade sanctions. There aren't any more leverage. There's no more, you know... Uh, there are no more carrots. There are no more sticks, you know, and that's that's where we are with this. You know, now that the treaty's dead, you know, it's now formal. It's now official. It was pretty clearly dead beforehand. You could do the, you know, Monty Python parrot sketch. The, the treaty was just resting. But that's <laughs> where we are here. And that's kind of a frustrating state of affairs. And it does kind of indicate the administration was pretty naive with its dealings with Putin from the very start. Jim, this no is probably <laughs> Jim. This is probably uh, potential to be a whole martini-length conversation. But just as a quick follow-up on this, we're hearing more and more from the Chinese lately. Uh, the 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 U.S. diplomatic arm, the State Department, and Blinken and so forth, accusing China of giving non-lethal aid to Russia, and now uh, some rumblings about China either thinking about or starting to give lethal aid uh, to Russia. And they claim that there's potentially a red line with lethal aid. We know how how well red lines are adopted in this uh, in this climate here in Washington. But what position are we in to do anything about that? We talked about how our our own arsenal is depleted because we're not replacing what we're sending to Ukraine. So what do we possibly have to use as a stick to China? I mean, you could say, all right, that if uh, that's it, we're not uh, we're, we're you know minimizing all trade you know ties. We are going to put, you know, even higher sanctions, you know, not just sanctions, but also even higher tariffs. We are basically trying to attempt to accelerate the economic decoupling uh, of this. You could say to the NBA, nope, you can't do any more efforts in China. Nope, you can't, you know, you could shut down on tourist visas. So, like there's stuff you could do that would really piss off the Chinese. But that would basically, you know, then you have to deal with the Chinese response to that. I think the administration, like this is, the, as soon as I heard, 
um, our UN ambassador Linda Thomas Greenfield say that this was a this would be a red line, a lethal support to the Russians. That you know, probably like you did, Greg. I had flashbacks to Obama and Syria and the use of chemical weapons. And if you're going to issue a red line, you sure as hell had better have genuine consequences for breaking the, stepping over that red line. And Obama didn't. And the, the the idea is like, well, that showed the Republicans. No, no, it showed the world that you run around making bluffing. You run around making threats that you have no intention of following up on. God, I hope we have something ready to do to China if they do this. Uh, my, I almost wonder if by putting out this kind of a pledge, you're now putting China in a position where it's very tempting for them to say, oh, oh, you're going to do really bad things if we send lethal aid to Russia? Okay, Russia, here's some weapons. All right, America, what are you going to do about it? I hope I hope the Biden administration's got a plan. But considering their past record, Greg, I'm not terribly optimistic. <laughs> you won't cross this line. You better not. Oh, you oh, did? Oh, not that line. Oh, you did? Oh, maybe this line. All right, this line over here. <laughs> Don't cross this one. You really better not cross this one. All right, yeah, we'll see what happens there. A lot of bluster probably coming from both sides in this situation. But uh, let's not make this more complicated than it already is, hopefully. So maybe people just need some good sleep. And I can't recommend better sheets than cozy earth bedding. Don't take my word for it. Mrs. Corumbus says by far these are uh, her favorite set of sheets that we've ever had. And that's uh, more than good enough for me. Uh, the most luxurious and responsibly sourced bedding in the world. Cozy earth bedding was made only using the finest premium viscose from highly sustainable bamboo. It's not a surprise that top designers are choosing cozy earth. And their bedding is naturally temperature regulating, so you'll sleep comfy all year round. Remember that Cozy Earth is also the brand that made Oprah's favorite things five years in a row. And I think that speaks volumes. And it's not just sheets. They also make loungewear, pajamas, or you can check out their new bath collection. So check it all out at Cozy Earth and save 35% now on all Cozy Earth products. Hurry, this New Year's offer ends soon. So go to CozyEarth.com martini and be sure to enter martini at checkout to save 35%. That's CozyEarth.com martini. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini down. This is probably the last time, at least on this occasion, that we'll talk about uh, Don Lemon. But Don Lemon's coming back to work on Wednesday. Don is off this morning is what we heard on Friday, Monday, and today on the CNN Morning Show. But he's going to be back Wednesday. And as part of his return to CNN following his Nikki uh, Haley is past her prime comments from last week, he's going to undergo formal training following sexist comments. Uh, Chris Lick, the network's new chief executive, says, I sat down with Don and had a frank and meaningful conversation. He has agreed to participate in formal training as well as continuing to listen and learn. We take this situation very seriously. And he says uh, it's important to us at CNN that we balance accountability with fostering a culture in which people can own, learn, and grow from their mistakes. So he's going to be back on Wednesday. So, Jim, if he had said that about Kamala Harris or uh, anybody on the left, I'm guessing this response would have been slightly different. So we we educate and we learn and we grow and we move on when it's a Republican who's been the target of such comments. I, I noticed that in this entire process, we're still waiting for an apology to Nikki Haley, yeah. uh, which strikes me as the sort of thing that would be a good step. I also love to know, like, what kind of formal training does Don Lemon go through to stop saying things like this? Do they do they have him and either his co-anchors or maybe stand-ins for his co-anchors and they go through some sort of simulated news broadcast and that when Don Lemon blurts out a, you know, ladies, 
Once you get past 30, everything down there starts drying up and becoming useless. Is there somebody who just comes, like, is it like a, a buzzer in his seat or some sort of shock therapy? Does somebody come out and wrap him on the knuckles or something like that? Like, if you don't have the instincts to not say the things that he said about Nikki Haley at this point, and he's, what is he, 57? Something like that? Close, yeah. You know, in his late 50s. I, I don't know. I'm very curious about what kind of formal training that would would, would do. And this is, you know, not the by, you know long from the first thing that has caused Don Lemon controversy. And you know, um, after this, someone reminded us of you know. Remember the time he speculated that the missing uh, uh, jetliner got sucked into a black hole. <laughs> I mean, we're, we know we're dealing with the top flight Mensa candidate. We know we're dealing with the sharpest knife in the drawer. There's something very odd, and I think that. Um, I, I don't know if it's because he's gay. I don't know if it's because he feels he's just so utterly invaluable to the network uh, that nothing he says can ever be considered, you know, beyond the pale. Hopefully, this conversation will will communicate it. It'll be interesting to see if Don Lemon comes out. But again, that that whole apology seemed very much a uh, oh, I'm sorry if anyone was offended. But again, he did not apologize to Nikki Haley. And like the other thing that's just kind of intriguing is that he says it, and you can just see from the reactions of his co-anchors, they know he's he's doing something bad, and he doesn't have the wherewithal to pick up on the fact that he's saying something really bad. And when pushed on it, his answer is always Google it. And it just, you know, um, my, my boss, Rich Lowry, just had the observation that like morning shows, like there are a whole bunch of networks that all have a bunch of morning shows. So why does someone choose one network over the other? Well, very often it has to do with the personalities of the hosts, right? They kind of get into the habit of, oh, I like it of these people. And the personalities of the host often has to come, you know, you have to want to communicate this warm, uh, inviting, you know, comfortable situation. Like, you know, oh, what's going on in the world? Oh, I could do Fox and Friends. I could do Morning Joe, but let's do CNN. And the problem is that Don Lemon seems to have contempt for everyone around him, or certainly for his co-anchors, or certainly for his women co-anchors. And so it's just this... Like he, in the end, this is just not a personality who belongs. You could argue, doesn't you? Know, it's a question of whether he belongs in a in a professional workplace at all. Whether he belongs in a news workplace that commits itself to, you know, being respectful to everyone. And then three, this is just not a guy who should be working with women. Probably the the most unsurprising problem CNN employee to have a problem with women, Greg, since their primetime anchor, Elliot Spitzer. <laughs> Yeah, going from a solo primetime show to sharing the desk with two other people in the morning show is probably not the most exciting uh, career shift uh, in the world, but there were reasons for that, too. Jim, we also had an MSNBC panel in the last couple days talk about how Nikki Haley is the brown face of white supremacist talking points. And so I don't know if this is just your standard left frothing at the mouth, can't handle a woman or a minority on the right, and they see that as some sort of threat or they're you know going against their own interests they're betraying their own people or i'm wondering if uh, because nikki haley is squarely in the middle of gen x uh, there's an effort now and i think desantis would fit in there as well that the left really doesn't want gen x uh coming to leadership because they're the last rational generation uh following the greatest generation who would actually have a majority conservative viewpoint on things and so they're hoping to just skip right past us and get to the millennials once they're they're done with the boomers am i reading too much into that uh i do okay for as much as i cannot stand other generations other, <laughs> my, my kids are generation z so they're okay they're all right and my parents are actually not baby boomers like they're technically greatest generation so I'm, i very much subscribe to the theory that there's a good generation and then a bad generation and then a good generation and then a bad generation and then a good generation 
Uh, but overall, Nikki Hill, I think what we see he, with her, we see with almost every other minority Republican, Tim Scott, etc., is um, this sense that basically because they're on the left, they can't be racist, and therefore they can denounce Republican officials of you know of color in the most racist terms imaginable, and that's okay. That in the end, racism is something that is only found in their political opponents. Now, even the most casual observation would say, oh, actually, no, that's not the case at all. And in fact, once you give yourself that mental permission slip that it's okay to denounce someone for being black, that it's okay to denounce someone for being a woman, it's okay to denounce someone for being Indian American, that all of that, you know, in a way, we walk, they walk around with this perpetual permission slip that they can be racist because their racism is for a good reason. Their racism is for the right reason, for the right cause. Their goal is to humiliate and shame people who don't think the way they do. In a way, this is a really like horrible and malevolent way of walking around and seeing the world. But I think listeners to this podcast are less than shocked by that. I think in the end, um, it is, you know, modern progressivism. One of the appeals of modern progressivism is this utter assurance that you're one of the good people. And because you believe the right things, how you actually treat people does not matter. I think most of us would actually see very much the opposite, that how you treat people is what matters most. And in the end, who you vote for is just one of many indicators of the kind of person you are. Well said. We'll see if uh, the coverage changes. I don't think it will. And the better she does, the worse it'll get, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, we'll see what we have on the, the menu for tomorrow. Talk to you tomorrow, Jim. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thank you so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and please tell a friend about us as well. Thanks so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep them coming. And get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us all on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a terrific Tuesday and join us again on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.